But dear friends, dear congregation, I would ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing this evening, earlier there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We arrive this evening in the 10th verse. We have been considering the subject of whether to marry or not to marry. Paul has been discussing the Christian's liberty, and it is a Christian's liberty whether to marry or not. And the Lord gives his people power when he gives them liberty, he gives them ability to do certain things. It is given some to be eunuchs, as the Lord Jesus said, some to be virgins, some not to marry, some to marry. And we continue on with this subject tonight as the Apostle Paul gives us God's inspired, infallible word. He says in verse 10, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Now some, some may be wondering here tonight, what is Paul saying in verse 10? Some might even come to verse 10 and say, well, Paul is not saying, he's saying here that his words are not the Lord's words. He's not saying that at all. And many of the liberals will jump on verse 10. But as we'll see tonight, what Paul is discussing here, he is giving teaching on things that the Lord Jesus hasn't given teaching on. And we'll open up what Paul says here. He says, unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 11 he says, but if she departs, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and not, let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest I speak, and he says, not the Lord. And here this is where the liberals jump on the bandwagon, as it were, and say, well, here you have it. Paul says, I speak, not the Lord. Well, Paul is going to give us teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ never gave us teaching on. And that's what we are to understand by this. The word of God never contradicts itself. Paul is going to give teaching on things here that the Lord Jesus Christ never gave teaching on in the days of his flesh. And Paul will expand on these things. So we need to get some of the nonsense out of the way that many of the liberals try to propagate when it comes to these verses. Paul is not contradicting Scripture here at all, but he is going to give us definitive teaching on things not taught before, as we'll see why, and you may be asking why is this so. Well, we'll consider those things later on. Well, first of all, let's come back to the subject that we've been considering, the subject of marriage, the subject also of singleness. He's been teaching on marriage and those who should be virgins or be single. And if you remember last time, I prefaced uh, the study that we were looking at with the fact that Paul says in the second word that we find there now concerning. He uses a little Greek preposition there called peri, and uh, every time we find that word now concerning, as you read through this epistle, you'll discover various questions that they asked. He says here, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, 
what Paul is doing is he is answering, answering specific questions that were posed to him by the church here at Corinth. The church was in quite a bad state. There were lots of problems. Remember, Paul ministered at the church for some 18 months. He went there somewhere around the year AD 50, and by AD 52, there were many difficulties. There was a lot of pride. There was a lot of contention at this church. Apollos is with the Apostle Paul. Now we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and Apollos doesn't feel it's right to go back. A number of men have gone back as a delegation. They went to see Paul at Philippi. And Paul has sent them back with this epistle, answering the many questions, dealing with the many schisms of the church. There was a lot of sin that was being tolerated. As we mentioned before, there was a man that had his father's wife, more than likely his stepmother. And this man was being allowed to sit at the Lord's table and to partake, and they hadn't dealt with this man. There was ongoing sin, and it was to the shame of the church. And the world was watching on as all these things were carrying on. And there were people, as we've said before, taking others to the law courts. Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 6, dare we take any of our brethren to court. Many things were amiss at the church, and there's... Uh, Frankly, dishonor to the Lord. There was no holiness. They were priding themselves in preachers rather than listening to the preaching of the word. And people were not conforming their lives to the word of God. Things were in a terrible state. And Paul now has to write about marriage. And uh, we thought last time on this subject of marriage, whether to marry or not to marry. And uh, Paul here deals with this whole teaching of marriage. Remember the central teaching and what Paul has been telling us in 1 Corinthians 6. There's an overarching principle that we're not to lose as Christians. Of course, now under the new covenant, of course, the ceremonial law is passed. The civil law also, they no longer under... Jewish civil jurisdiction anymore, that has passed. The moral, moral law still stands, the Ten Commandments, but they're also under grace. And uh, because we're under grace doesn't mean to say we can live how we want. We still have to conform our lives to the enduring standard of the Ten Commandments. They still stand. But he says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What he really means there, everything that is lawful is lawful to me. Of course, I have to emphasize for those people who, I'm not saying there's anybody here that is like that, that can go from the sublime to the ridiculous, to think that, you know, we can commit murder that that's lawful for us, that we can commit adultery, that that's lawful, of course it's not lawful. But all things that are lawful are lawful to me. But there is a principle, at least two principles, that we must follow in the Christian life. All things are lawful unto me, of course, that are lawful, but all things are not expedient. 
As I said, you can eat. It's, it's lawful for us to eat anything. You can eat pork now. You can eat lots of things. As the Lord gives to Peter that vision of all those animals in that sheet. Peter, nothing is unclean now. But it's unlawful, isn't it, for us to be a glutton. And it's unlawful for us to be a drunk. That's not right. Indulgence in any way is wrong. It's sinful. Why? Because notice verse 13 of chapter 6. The body is the Lord's. He says, verse 13, meats for the belly and belly for the meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That applies to food. That applies to marriage. And he goes on to speak about how you cannot marry a harlot because your body is to be for the Lord. You shouldn't marry an adulteress because that would make you, as the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 19, an adulterer and so on. And Paul says here in verse 14, and God hath raised up, both raised up the Lord and will raise up us by his own power. Know ye not, verse 15, that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. And so he goes on to speak about the importance of how we should honor our bodies, not just with foods, but with morality, with godliness, and uh, taking care that we have a godly marriage, that we have a holy marriage that is pleasing to the Lord. Why? Verse 20, because you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Not only was your soul purchased, but he purchased your body. He says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. It's both spirit and body, isn't it? Which are God's. My hands, my feet, everything, every part of me belongs to the Lord. And whether I'm single or whether I'm married, I must make sure that I apply the two overarching principles that we find in verse 12. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Marriage should not make us gods and should not make our wives goddesses. Children should not become little gods in our homes. It's sad. This country, this time of the year, time where the world calls Christmas, many families are going into debt because they buy their children so much that the family is in debt for the rest of the year. You'll be surprised to hear what the average child, how much money is spent on the average child today. And a time of year, if you celebrate the incarnation of the Lord, ought to be a blessed time, but it's become a curse. And there are more divorces now this time of year, more fights, there's more drunkenness, marriage breaks up, breakups, because people are not seeking to know the Lord. Well, whether single, we're coming back to the subject here, or married, 
It is to be for the Lord. And bringing you back to that second principle that we thought of. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Not everything is expedient, first of all. It's not expedient to overindulge in things, is it? And in some cases, it, a, a situation may not be expedient for you as a Christian, nor should you as a Christian be brought under the power of anything. Grace reigns in you now. Sin shall not have dominion over you, says the Apostle Paul. This is the life of the Christian. You know, he's a new man. Old things are past. Behold, all things are become new. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. And nothing should have power over us. And whatever God has given us, whether it's our home, our possessions, our wives, or our wife, or our children, our husband, all of these things should be used for the Lord's glory. Everything should redound to his name. So those are the principles. We mustn't leave them behind as we come and we continue on here this evening. We've been thinking about marriage. Marriage is lawful for anybody. Rome makes an absolute mockery of this, where they say, well, they're priests and they're cardinals and they're so-called pope, he can't marry. Well, the Lord Jesus, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He healed Peter's have a look there, Matthew 8, verse 14. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother. Peter had a wife. His mother was laid sick with fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto him. Peter was married. If Peter was the so-called pope, of course he's not a pope. He was married. But look what Rome have done. And you look at the Church of Rome today, it's probably one of the greatest havens of homosexuality. It's rife with it. So much for their wisdom. And by the way, there's no priests in the New Testament. There are no vicars. And I don't know why, in so many ways, the Church of England want to copy the Church of Rome. The Lord Jesus said, in Matthew 23, 9, he said, Call no man father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Rome has done so much damage to the name of Christ and so much damage to the church. Anyone is allowed to marry. But as we saw last week, God gives the grace and he gives the power for marriage and he gives the power and the grace for singleness. Not everybody is called to the same thing. Well, we were thinking last week that marriage is honorable, isn't it? In all, Hebrews 13, verse 4, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So we thought about these principles, that we are not our own. We were purchased to serve God. Our body is not our own. Not even our marriages are our own. They belong to the Lord. We don't say, my marriage is for me. Who does the Lord think he is that he can tell me how to govern my marriage? Well, if we're wise, 
we'll have the blessed marriage in the Lord, won't we? How are husbands, as we thought last week, to love their wives? Like the church, like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5, are we not told their husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it to himself by the washing of water by the word and so on. That's how husbands are to love their wives, cherishing them, giving them the word. It's the best thing we can do for our wives by not only giving them the word, but living out the word ourselves and being a godly example and leading our children. And then what about wives? We thought, didn't we, in Ephesians 5.22, where we read there, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. What am I saying? As we look at this chapter, we made this remark last week, what Paul has to say here about singleness and marriage is not everything. The scriptures are full, aren't they, of teaching of how we ought to conduct our marriages and our lives. And ultimately, it is the institution of God. It, it's not made by man. Remember, as we thought there in Genesis chapter 2, how the God of heaven brought Eve to Adam. Remember how the Lord said, it's not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet, it says there, helpmeet, a helpmeet for him. That's an interesting phrase. The word meet really means suitable. And uh, we could dwell on this a little bit more tonight. A helpmeet, a suitable helpmeet. And that First of all, for a Christian, it has to be true in the spiritual sense. If somebody is not the same-minded as you, somebody is not spiritual, if they're not born again, yep. what I'm saying here, I'm speaking, first of all, to those who are intending to marry. Paul says here in this chapter, we marry only in the Lord. And the first thing we've got to consider when it comes to marriage, is that person saved? Or are they lost? A suitable helpmeet. But that can also be true in another sense. There's no point in marrying somebody. They might even be saved. But they might be quite different to you in many ways. Now hear what I've got to say. There's some people that are hard workers. And some people that are frankly slobs. And they live like slobs. And you know, I know... The old saying goes, opposites attract. But I tell you what, give it time, opposites don't last long. That's true. person will eventually get sick of it. Say, I can't live with this any longer. And that's why it's so important that you have things in common. Not only the Lord, but do you have the same ideals? Do you have the same, you know, if the wife's got to continue to pick up after a man every day. And he can't do the basics. Of course, she must look after the home, cook, clean. But if they don't have the standards, the same standards, if they don't have the same ideals, if he's constantly engaged in some hobby, 
And he, she was looking for a spiritual man who would read the word of God every day and give himself to devotion. The marriage is going to be a disaster. Things have to be right. The Lord meant for Adam a true helpmeet. You know, I suppose every wife could qualify for a man if she's a Christian. But you know, the Lord has one specifically in view for that person. You have things in common that's so important. Above all, the closer you are to the Lord, the more you should find you have in common. And there's so much more we could say on this. You could read Proverbs 31. Ladies, it's a tremendous passage about the godly woman, how she rises up early. She takes care of the home. She looks after the children. And uh, she even finds time to take care of the poor. Uh, husband's clothes are always well looked after. He doesn't have to worry about ironing a shirt. He doesn't have to worry about all the cooking. He doesn't have to do all the housework. He goes out to work. He can trust her. She's faithful. He's faithful. We mentioned last week, Titus 2.3. The aged woman likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young woman, this is important, what? To be sober, sober-minded, to love their husbands, to love their children, doesn't just mean with a heart, but love is a duty, it is an action, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God be not blasphemed. That's the main reason. That God's name not be shamed by a woman that doesn't do these things. You see, it's so important. And God's name can be blasphemed in many ways when an unbeliever comes to your house. And they see how things are. Is it a place of honor? Is it where the wife is taking care of these things? And people feel comfortable about eating in your home. They don't say, this is a dirty place. I don't want to eat here. The swearing. The children are unruly. These things ought never to be the case. But this can be the case. Where God isn't honored. Proverbs 19, verse 14. Houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers. And a prudent wife is from the Lord. A prudent wife is from the Lord. Money can be passed down. What is the Lord saying there? Money can be passed down. Inheritance comes from a father. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. She is more precious, says Solomon, in Proverbs 31, than rubies. She's not lazy. She's diligent. He is a godly man. He doesn't abuse her emotionally. But he loves her, and he cherishes her, 
and he cares for her. Well, all of this is a gift, you see. To have such a godly husband and a godly wife, and this is Christian marriage, is a gift from Almighty God. And it should reflect, if you read Ephesians 5 there, it should reflect the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. How the church loves him, prizes him. Paul says to the wives there in Ephesians 5, reverence your husbands. Don't speak down to them, either in front of other people or children. Peter even speaks about Abraham, how Sarah called him Lord. Now, I'm not saying, ladies, you should call your husbands Lord, but have due respect, have due reverence for them. A godly marriage, let me say, is a beautiful thing. And it's one of the bedrocks of a nation, of a society, especially Christian marriage. Now, we must make haste and come to these things here tonight. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 10, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Paul is not saying here that I disagree with the Lord. He's not saying this at all. Where he says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. The point he is making, as we will see, is that the Lord Jesus has already given commandment on this. He has commanded it. It's like when John says, A new commandment I give you, but it's an old one. You know that verse in 1 John. What is it that you love one another? How is it new? It's new in this sense in terms of its quality. Because nobody had ever seen the kind of love that Jesus Christ had. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. It's new in that sense in terms of its quality. Never been seen before like that. And that's why he says we should lay down our lives for our brethren. Greater love hath no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you keep my commandments. So he says here, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. This is plain teaching. We see this if you turn with me to Matthew Chapter 5, marriage is for life. And Paul is just emphasizing this, Matthew 5, 31. It has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saying for the cause of fornication, the word there is the word pornia, which means sexual infidelity, causeth her to commit adultery, And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Marriage is for life. It is sacred and it's binding. Again in Matthew 19, verse 9. The Lord Jesus says there, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoever marrieth her, which is put away, 
doth commit adultery. You notice in that chapter, the men standing by said, well, well, Moses gave a law that a man could give his wife a bill of divorcement. Well, let's have a look at that. Deuteronomy 24. If you just turn there with me for a moment, let's see what the scriptures have to say here. There was an exception, but it is in the case, I submit to you, where there are not two or three witnesses that could come forth. A man has suspected something unclean, or it could be said, even a woman has suspected something unclean, that the husband has done something untoward, and that person just cannot live with it. And there are certain stipulations that have to follow. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, for what reason? And by the way, some of the Jews would just stop there. Well, you don't stop there. Because he hath found some uncleanness in her. And that word in the Hebrew has to do with sexual infidelity. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now notice, and when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. So here's the case. He's seen something. He's suspected something. But by the way, there aren't two or three witnesses here. Because you know if there were two or three witnesses, you know what it meant. It meant stoning to death. Leviticus 20, verse 10. And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committed adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. That's how sacrosanct and how sacred marriage is to the Lord. So something that is untoward some sexual infidelity, then he can rightfully give her a bill of divorcement. It can't be proven. You think of it, he's seen something. But the man just can't live with what he's seen the rest of his life. It's difficult. And he can't reconcile. So he can give a bill of divorcement. And by the way, the time of the Lord Jesus... Let me just say, with regards to Leviticus 20, the civil law had passed into the hands of the Romans. That's why they had to ask permission to put him to death, because they couldn't exact some of those laws upon people. Now, we have this situation, so if you just look here, This man, he can't continue on with this relationship. But I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 3 and 4. He he writes this woman a bill of divorcement, and he cannot take her back. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. 
for that is abomination before the Lord. In other words, this man, if he sends her away with a bill of divorcement, he better make sure. He's absolutely sure about this. Because he can't take her back. If he wants to divorce her just because he wants a younger wife, he better think long and hard. Because he can never, ever take her back. This would be an abomination. Read there. He shall cause the land to sin. This is how holy marriage is to be. So he can't take her back. So he better think very hard if he's divorcing her for another reason. And men did this in the Lord Jesus Christ's day. That's why the bill of divorcement was given because something couldn't be proven and some men were just marrying their wife because they wanted a younger one divorcing their wife because they wanted a younger wife and that was meant to stop that the other thing is we come back to this chapter here so that's the only exception if you like but he could never take her back. And another thing is, one day that man's going to stand before the Lord. And if he's lied, he's an adulterer. She never did anything. He's the adulterer in the eyes of the Lord. Because he was effectively saying she should have been stoned to death. There weren't two, three witnesses. Yeah, but there are three witnesses in heaven, we're told. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And the Lord's seen it. Now, coming back here to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11. But, and, if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. But if she depart, that's the woman departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Now, notice, and let not the husband put away his wife, not even separation. There's absolutely no provision, as I hope to show even later, because we'll come to verse 15 in a moment, where it seems that many today are using verse 15 as an excuse. If people separate, and we see it, we'll see what Paul means here, what I believe he's teaching, and it's really the thin end of a wedge that is leading to a lot of problems today in even Reformed circles. There's absolutely no provision for divorce if somebody leaves. And Paul reaffirms this below. Have a look at verse 39 of this chapter. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now, this is not the only place that it's said. The Lord Jesus said it in Matthew 19. The Lord Jesus said it in in Mark 10, but also Paul once again in Romans 7 says it. For the woman, he says in Romans 7 verse 2, which hath an husband is bound by the law to a husband as long as he liveth. So many times in Scripture, the Lord makes clear that marriage is for life. But notice a common but blasphemous misconception of Paul's words. I've already alluded to it. 
Notice what he says. But to the rest I speak, speak I, not the Lord. As I've already said, the liberals here jump immediately where Paul says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. What Paul is going to teach here has not been mentioned before in Scripture, certainly in the New Testament. What Paul means here is that the Lord has not given direct teaching on what will follow. Now what follows? Have a look. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him. So a brother, a believer, has a wife, but she is not born again. She doesn't believe. So here's the situation. He was saved. He was converted. He heard the gospel, and he was changed. And you can see why now. Because this is a community now of the Jews and the Gentiles. Commonly, as we will see in the Old Testament, the Jews married the Jews. They weren't allowed to marry outside into unbelieving. And generally, those who were believers, true born-again believers in the Old Testament, married those who were believers, born-again believers. They would have sought godly spouses. Now, have a look there. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. He might be inclined to think, well, is this marriage any good? I'm a believer, I've got an unbelieving wife. How hard it's going to be with the children now and everything else. Well, the Lord commands you, my dear friend, you stay married. Marriage is a precious thing in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord, as we will see, can and does sanctify it. He does set it apart. That's what the word means. And then he goes on and he says, in verse 12, verse 13, I beg your pardon, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Same thing applies for the woman. She is saved, she's converted, you stay together. Well, the Lord will bless it. This is what he says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. It doesn't mean made clean. That word sanctified means set apart. God has put you into, he's saved you, he's converted you in that marriage. And God's been pleased to do that. And he can bless it. He may or may not save that spouse. But it'll certainly be blessed. It'll certainly be sanctified. It'll be a better marriage, will it not, than it was before. Because there's a believer in that family now. And, and you stay there. Now, this whole idea of marriage between godly People, the godly marrying the godly, has always been there. The believer, Paul says here, even in this chapter, you only marry in the Lord. Now I know this is a slightly different situation, but let me come back to the original design of marriage. 
It is always to be marry in the Lord. We note in the day when the world was getting worse and worse, just before the flood. If you turn to Genesis 6, 1, we read, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, I've heard some rather bizarre explanations from some people as to the meaning of this verse. Some people teach here that the sons of God are angels, and they had relations with the daughters of men. That's not what the teaching of Scripture is. We never taught that. But the sons of God were the godly men. And they mix with the daughters of men. Ordinary men. And that's where you see a decline in society. And that's why, as you read on in this chapter, men got worse and worse. Because there was that mix. There was the godly mixing with the ungodly. Saved people. That line of Seth mixing with that line of Cain. And the world just got worse. And God had to destroy. There are many instances in the Old Testament where it was strictly forbidden and very clear where we see where believers were never to marry the Canaanites, the heathen, and so on. Think of Abraham, how he sent Isaac to his brother. Sent Isaac to his brother Nahor to find a wife. And then we think of Rebekah and Jacob. Well, how Rebekah sent Jacob to her brother Laban to find a wife. And there was Rachel. So we also know that time when Esau grieved his parents. Remember how he married two Hittite women. And that grieved the godly parents. So that's just coming back to the teaching there, how it should always be that if we are believers and we're not married, we should seek to marry in the Lord. But if we are saved and the Lord has saved us in a marriage where we weren't saved before and our spouse is unsaved, you stay in that marriage and the Lord will sanctify it. The Lord will set it apart and the children. It'll be a blessed means for your children. You know, think of how much better it is when there is a believer in a marriage union, even with unbelieving children and another unbelieving spouse. And the Lord will give grace. The marriage union, you see, is set apart, sanctified by the Lord. This is what the teaching is here. Verse 14, For because the unbelieving husband is sanctified or set apart for good by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified. It can't mean holy, you see the word here is used by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. The word holy there is again the word hagiasos, hagiasmas. It means to be set apart for the Lord. The children aren't automatically saved because one of the spouses are, is a Christian. That's bizarre. It just wouldn't make sense, would it? And we also wholly object the idea that the children are somehow in the new covenant because of this. And there are those who teach that. But I submit to you in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, 
that the new covenant, we read there, the Lord says, Behold, the days come when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day, and so on. And he goes on to say what that covenant will look like. But this shall be the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no, man, teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Therefore, that cannot include unbelieving children. And it cannot include your unbelieving wife. They're not in the covenant of grace. And you can't be in a covenant of grace one minute and then be out of it. It's nonsensical. Really what Paul is saying here, coming back to this passage, is that the Lord can and does bless a marriage even where there is one person who, one of the spouses who was not saved. The Lord can bless it. But let us follow on. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. So that's the unbelieving. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now earlier he's told us, look at verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And then verse 13, And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. And then we read here verse 15, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, many people use this as an excuse to simply divorce somebody because they leave. And this is very common today. Some take this word here, bondage, to mean that you have uh, no obligation to remain married to them. Some take it to mean that you don't have a responsibility to be accountable to them. Some also take the view that you don't have a responsibility to give them conjugal rights, intimacy. And this can be quite common, would have been common amongst the Jews. Well, she's my wife, I left her, and I can drop in at any time. I don't mean to be crude, but that's how some men treated their wives. I believe he's saying here, she's not under obligation in that sense to be used and abused in that way. Paul here does not give license for divorce if somebody leaves. And I'll say this because nowhere else in Scripture are we found this. If there were a verse that said, and if Paul went on to say, 
he or she is now free to marry. That would be different. But Paul doesn't say that. In fact, you get to the end of this chapter, and Paul emphasizes again that verse 39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. And you can't overrule that, and you certainly can't overrule what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 19. Now, what I've just said, I want you to notice there's something else that validates my argument. Look at what Paul goes on to say. But God hath called us to peace. Now, notice what he says in verse 16. For what knowest thou, O wife? You see, he still continues to call the woman a wife. Whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? What has he said before? God has called you to peace. And you have to be wise in making that peace. What does it say in Romans 12, 18? If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And then he goes on about how we should be at peace with all men as much as is possible. Even if there is a leaving, a departure from the house, what is the whole goal? It's not to divorce that person, but it is to try to be reconciled to that person. Not to be abused sexually, if you like, or exploited whenever he or she likes and they just drop in when they like. That would be wrong. But you are to seek, to try, to reconcile. Look what he says. But God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? In the keeping of that peace, and in maintaining peace with that person that is departed, you must try to seek to keep as much contact as possible. You see, verse 16 has a conjoining word to it. He says, for, because, here's the reason. You don't know whether you might save your wife. He doesn't mean that you yourself can save. You might save that person from great treachery and going on to go and marry somebody else. You maintain a proper bond, a proper relationship as, as much as possible. Marriage is a sacred thing, and we should do all that we can to preserve it. Now, you just think of this. Many people might use the excuse, and this is very common today. I'm hearing it in many church circles. What young people are doing, they have a breakup. They call it you know, they say they can't reconcile their differences. And they very well know 
their pastor or another pastor will not marry them. If they leave their spouse, get a divorce and marry somebody else. Because what is that? The Lord Jesus tells us, Matthew 19, that is adultery. And as a minister, you can't marry somebody who has done that, except there has been sexual infidelity. So what do they do? They separate, and they say, aha, you see, here's this clause on the so-called desertion. He deserted me, she deserted me, let's just agree that it was desertion, so they can both get married. Do you see how that is exploited today? And it is exploited today. And it's an easy way out for so many to get around this whole issue of adultery. Because the Lord Jesus says if you, you divorce somebody for no other reason than adultery, it's still adultery. And you go and marry somebody else. It's adultery. And so what do they do? They just say, well, it was just desertion. And that, you see, is a loophole. And there are no loopholes in God's word. Now, if the word of God finds us here today, we're born again, and maybe we've been divorced, and now we're married again. I say, you must keep your marriage, and you must make the best of it, and you must honor it in the Lord. You're born again. Would God, and let me say, here's another verse. The Lord Jesus makes very clear, doesn't he? He says there in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And I would never want to give anybody advice on something that I don't see clear mandate on. In scripture. I couldn't do it with good conscience. I just couldn't do it. Marriage is holy and we should as much as possible to try to reconcile people. Now let me say something else. Very often if somebody has left a marriage relationship, you can imagine the, the innocent party is there and they've left in many cases, it won't be before long that that person goes ahead and commits adultery. I'm not saying it happens all the time. But we should not tempt God. And we should not try to intervene and put things there that should not be there. Now, some also use the clause here to say, well, if the person leaves, imagine you've got a, a husband and the wife leaves and the church elders go and see the wife that has left and they try to bring her back or it's a husband or whatever and the person doesn't listen. And then they, the elders say, well, we must conclude. 
She doesn't hear the church, and she's even brought before the church to try to reconcile matters with her husband. And then they said, well, we must conclude with Matthew 18, 15 to 18, that she is an unbeliever. And that is often the case. Paul does not give license for that. It says there in verse 10, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Verse 11, And if she depart, let her remain unmarried. Do you see that? Let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. Now, as I said, the unbeliever generally will prove themselves to be an unbeliever. And if they have left, it may well be that they will commit adultery. And if that then is the case, the innocent party is free to marry. That is how I see the scriptures presented. And I hope faithfully presented to you tonight. This is not an easy subject. It's a very difficult subject and needs to be handled with care. And I know some have had very difficult pasts. I'm very well aware of that. And uh, all I can say is, may the Lord have his hand upon our marriages for good. And may the Lord be on it in our marriages. If we want our marriages to work, and I'm sure if we're a Christian, we do. The answer, the recipe to all of our problems are not found out there in the world. Look at the world, it's a mess. I was looking at the statistics on divorce just over these last few years, and it's harrowing to read how many people are divorced. Very few stay married unto death. Very few. So if you have a marriage and you're in the Lord, it's a precious thing. Guard it with all your heart. We've seen what the world is like. We don't take our advice from the world, but we follow the Lord. And if we follow the Lord, we can be assured a blessing from him. But you know, our marriage also speaks to our marriage union to Christ, doesn't it? You see, if we're really married to Christ, our marriages will work. I'm sure of that. They will work. Because we'll put him first. And if we put him first, no good thing says the scriptures, will he withhold from us. Amen.